Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. Today is the 15th of April, 2022. I'm broadcasting this on Good Friday. This is lecture number 32 on diabetes. And we're going to be talking about fatty acids in particular. So I will get started. <clears throat> now, recall that there are three PPAR transcription factors that are involved in stress responses that are associated with the normal healthy incursion of a response to high levels of circulating fatty acid. So these peroxisome proliferator receptors are going to function at various tissue levels and the ligands that bind to these receptors are going to be specific. So the peroxisome proliferator activated receptor alpha, beta delta, which is its own family, and then the gamma. Now there are even substructures of each of these three classes. So there are some isomorphic substitutions of amino acids when they've been looked at, particularly when looking at different species, of course, but also even in humans, there's some variation. So for PPR alpha, the natural ligands are unsaturated fatty acids, <clears throat> leukotriene B4, 8-hydroxyicosatetraenoic acid, synthetic ligands that have been used uh, to control certain aspects of diabetes. Many of you have probably heard of, particularly uh, cl clinicians, phenofibrate, Clofibrate and Gemfibrazil are the three pharmaceuticals that target PBR alpha. For PBR beta delta, the natural ligands are again unsaturated fatty acids. Also, a specific prostacyclin called carboprostacyclin. And then certain apolipoproteins that are linked to the very low density lipoprotein fraction. Synthetic ligands we covered recently. <clears throat> this one does not have a, it has a systemic chemical name, but it doesn't have a common name yet. Um, GW501516. I'll, I'll look that up and I'll give you more detail on that one. PPR gamma, natural ligands, again, unsaturated fatty acids. But now we get into more of these um, icosatetraenoic acids. So recall that there are epoxy and there are hydroxy forms. It depends on if, whether or not they're coming from the P450 epoxygenase pathway or from the lipoxygenase pathway. Remember, there are three different isozymes for lipoxygenase. And we're going to get into that in a moment here. But uh, the natural ligands include 15-hydroxyicosatetraenoic acid, both 9 and 13-hydroxyoctadecadienoic acid, 15-deoxy-delta-12-14-prostaglandin J2, and the prostaglandin PGJ2 we mentioned before. Now, here's where a lot of pharmaceuticals are thrown at. Synthetic ligands, again, these fall into this major class of drugs, but rosiglitazone, pioglitazone, 
troglitazone, siglitazone, farglitazar, and then two other uh, compounds with very similar structures. These are, um, remember, these are thiazole adene uh, uh, ketones. And I will, and I will uh, when I do my video lecture, I'll show you the structures because they're kind of interesting. They act as agonists to PBR gamma. Okay, so let's talk a little about fatty acid metabolism here. <clears throat> now, arachidonic acid can be removed from the two position uh, from various phospholipids that are embedded in the plasma membrane. Of course, arachidonic acid can also be substituted for eicosapentaenoic or docosahexaenoic acid, which means you're going to run through di uh, different products, but the same pathways. So what you get from, say, phospholipase A2, phospholipase C, phospholipase D, after, uh, lipase act after li that lipase activity, you can get free arachidonic acid. Free arachidonic acid can be further metabolized via lipoxygenases. You add the 5-lipoxygenase, which will make 5-HPETE. Um, you will also have 8-lipoxygenase, 12-lipoxygenase, and 15-lipoxygenase, so three different isozymes of the enzyme. And here you're going to get the hydroxyicosatetraenoic acids. And these include a quite a variety, the 5, the 8, the 12, the 15, as well as the 16, the 17, 18, 19, and 20. All these are hydroxyicosa tetraenoic acids. Okay. Now you also make epoxyicosa tetraenoic acids. And these can be uh, produced by the cytochrome P450, so-called epoxygenase. Uh, other names for this uh, enzyme uh, classification are the SIPs. So you have SIP2C, SIP2J are primarily responsible for making these epoxides. Now, some of those hydroxy icosa tetraenoic acids, the ones I just mentioned a moment ago, come from omega hydroxylase reactions. And that is, of course, a different type of cytochrome P450 than the SIPs I just mentioned. So the classical SIPs will make 5,6 epoxy icosa tetraenoic acid, 8,9. These are different, uh, of course, positional isomers, 11,12 and 14,15. So they can resolve to a 5S6R epoxy icosatetraenoic acid, which can then be metabolized uh, further. Now, that further metabolism will occur with a soluble epoxide hydrolase. So it just means passing water over the bond and when you, over that epoxy bond, and you get, then you end up with a diol. And that gives you 5,6-dihydroxy icosatetraenoic acid. And it probably has its own receptor, but it hasn't really been worked out yet. Now, that's important because all of the epoxy icosatetraenoic acids 
when they are metabolized, so those dihydroxies, those are the deaths, the one I just told you about, those diols, um, by that enzyme, a soluble epoxyhydrolase. Now, if you inhibit that enzyme, so there are pharmaceuticals that target that enzyme, that soluble epoxyhydrolase, um, when you inhibit it, you promote or increase the substrate because you because you're not running it through that SHE enzymatic pathway. So that means you promote the elevation of the epoxy tetraenoic acids, all those I just mentioned, all those positional isomers, and that gives you an anti-inflammatory sequelae. Now, this has been targeted and studied quite a bit in human diseases, including. Uh, many of the respiratory diseases one encounters, asthma, emphysema, and potentially uh, etiologic agent-associated lung diseases, such as those caused by virus and bacteria. Infections from either virus or bacteria have um, as one of their potential pharmaceuticals is targeting that soluble epoxide hydrolase because that would then enhance anti-inflammatory responses because those epoxy icosatetraenoic acids are anti-inflammatory, okay? Whereas the dihydroxy are not, in fact, they're pro-inflammatory. So uh, all those diseases I just mentioned, plus, of course, allergies and COPD and ARDS, multiple diseases can be targeted by targeting that soluble epoxide hydro hydrolase, just so you understand. Now, going back to the gamma, uh, excuse me, the omega hydroxylase from cytochrome P450 or the lipoxylase pathway, making all those hydroxy icosatetraenoic acids, all those different positional isomers I told you. When you resolve the 20 HED, 20 hydroxy icosatetraenoic acid, you can further metabolize that to an oxo-epoxy and a dihydroxy-heti, also known as LX5. And these have their own receptors. Many of these icosanoids, these oxygenated fatty acids, actually have receptors which induce or prevent the inflammatory response. So this is upstream from cytokine storm. Just like the first lipoxygenase pathway I went through, making 5-HPETE, you can also then from, from that pathway make the leukotrienes. Now, these are peptido fatty acids, peptido coming from glutathione. So you have multiple um, formulations of either the full glutathione added covalently or removing uh, after proteolytic activity, removing first the uh, glycine, then uh, the cysteine of these um, glutathione, glutathionylated um, LTB4, LTC4, LDT4, and LTE4, those different um, leukotrienes. These are very potent vasoconstrictive compounds. And they were first described in leukocytes. So you have receptors for LTB4 and LTD4 and LTC4. And, and each of those receptors will have a different 
usually very potent vasoconstrictive as well as pro-inflammatory response. So those are all apoxygenase 5 products. Finally, you have cyclooxygenase. There are three different isoforms of COX, cyclooxygenases 1, 2, and 3. The first product of all of them is PGH2. That's a prostaglandin. And then the PGH2 can bifurcate into two pathways. One is to make prostaglandins, and the other is to make thromboxanes. If you go down the prostaglandin uh, pathway, you can also make prostacyclins. And the prostaglandins are things like PGT2, PGE2, uh, PGF2-alpha, and then that PG. 12 or PGI2. Those, that last one is the prostacyclin. If you run it through the thromboxane synthase pathway, you'll make thromboxane A2 or TXA2, which has its own receptor. So ultimately, you have multiple oxygenated fatty acids, right? And so when you make either leukotrienes or dihydroxy, uh, icosatetraenoic acids, or simply hydroxy icosatetraenoic acids, or epoxy icosatetraenoic acids, or all those prostaglandins I mentioned, all of those fatty acids can have their own receptors on, on, in membranous regions, either on the plasma membrane or intracellularly. And these will then induce a transcription factor cascade, such as talking about PPAR again, or uh, sometimes not PPAR, but other nuclear receptor-mediated responses, making dimers of those various transcription factors, controlling either pro or anti-inflammatory responses by after chromatin retailering and sometimes epigenetic modifications associated with these oxygenated fatty acids. Yes, that's correct. That's what I said. By inducing methylation, acetylation, propanylation, ubiquitinylation, succinylation, melanation, either of lysine residues on histones or on cytosine or adenosyl residues, either proximal to promoter regions, genes, or sometimes enhancer or splice junction regions, all of which are going to be involved in the control of gene expression. Okay. All right. So the physiological roles of the various proximal proliferate activated receptors for PPR alpha, they're involved, they control uh, after transcriptional regulation, lipid beta oxidation and homeostasis a control over pro-inflammatory processes and therefore vascular integrity. And they also mediate various lipidemic, lipidemic functions of the fibrates. So in liver, what you get is an increase in fatty acid oxidation, fatty acid uptake, increase in ApoA1 transcription, ApoA2 transcription, and therefore increases in high-density lipoprotein fraction, production, and secretion from the liver. In the vessels and in the vasculature, um, the same PPAR-alpha can increase levels of triacylglycerol, decrease free fatty acid, 
because free fatty acid will be mopped up to make triacylglycerol. Um, uh, same thing will increase uh, the apolipoproteins to make HDL. And when you make higher levels of HDL, you decrease the apolipoprotein production for VLDL. So that goes down. Also, PPR alpha is involved in decreasing cytokine production in the vessel uh, and decrease NF-kappa B, which is a transcription factor which turns on pro-inflammatory cytokines, and increases APOE, which, of course, is one of the apolipoproteins in HDL. PPAR beta-delta family are responsible for insulin sensitivity. We've talked about this recently. And because of that, uh, PPAR beta-delta are uniquely and tightly regulating glucose homeostasis and lipid homeostasis. And because of that, vascular integrity. You also had adipocentric action. So within the adipose, you get a decrease in cytokines, a decrease in resistin, and a decrease in free fatty acid. At the same time, you get a decrease in NF-kappa B and an increase, of course, in the adipose of GLUT4 because you're enhancing insulin sensitivity, which means higher glucose uptake and, yes, more glycogen synthesis, particularly in the skeletal muscle. PPR gamma, finally, uh, is involved in glucose homeostasis and in triacylglycerol synthesis and adipose storage. So PPR gamma is involved in differentiation and maturation of adipocytes from those pre-adipocytes in mature form. An increase in insulin sensitivity uh, in the adipose. Therefore, an increase in glucose homeostasis or control over glucose homeostasis. In fact, PPR gamma, when you agonize it, can prevent in prodromal type 2 diabetics hyperglycemia. You also enhance vascular integrity in the skeletal muscle, but also in the liver. Um, PPR gamma will induce the genes for uh, beta oxidation of fatty acids. It will increase the uncoupling protein, which is found in the mitochondria. So it's going to generate heat, which can cause a browning of uh, white adipose tissue. Uh, the, of course, the, the bioenergetics of that pathway means you're going to decrease the amount of triacylglycerol, and you're also going to increase HDL, high-density lipoprotein fraction, in uh, circulating through the muscle, but being generated de novo uh, from the liver. So a little bit more detail here. When PPAR gamma binds to its ligands, remember these are going to be essential fatty acids or eicosanoids of the various types, once that happens and retinoic acid X receptor, the RxR alpha binds to retinoic acid or to 9-cis-retinol, you'll get a dimerization of that transcription factor. And when that happens, when you have an inactive uh, PPAR gamma RxR alpha transcriptional control, you're going to get co-repressors formed. These co-repressors include proteins like SMRT, TAZ, TNIP1. The co-repressor will bind to that dimerized transcription factor with the PPR gamma and RxR alpha, and it will prevent the induction of uh, 
uh, gene uh, transcription. So it'll prevent basically all the other genes I just told you about that normally be turned on by PPR gamma that would be anti-diabetic, anti-hyperlipidemic, anti-hyperglucosemic. When you have a co-repressor, all that's blocked. When you have an active PPR gamma RXR um, complex, of course, you have co-activators. And, there are, and co-activators that you've heard about before CERC-1, CERC-2, and CERC-3, the CBP, and the P300 proteins, those co-activators will associate with PPR, gamma, RXR, alpha dimer. They will then uh, appropriately bind to the response element in the DNA, open up that DNA and allow for uh, chromatin retailering and the expression of the genes that are known to be promoted by PPR gamma dimerizing with RXR alpha. And these include genes that are associated with adipocyte differentiation, anti-inflammatory responses, insulin sensitization, and of course, beta oxidation of fatty acids. So that's one more level of control I wanted you to understand because again, this is authentic biochemistry and we want to bring in all these details. Now, Remember back when we were talking about AMP-dependent kinases. Now, AMP builds up in skeletal muscle when ATP levels are depleted. AMP also will build up in the adipose tissue when you slow down the rates of bioenergetic transformation of either glucose or fatty acid. to run those electrons into molecular oxygen to make water so that now you have a a system where ATP levels are low and AMP levels are high. When you have AMP kinase, adenosine monophosphate high, it will bind to a kinase and it'll activate that kinase. So once you get uh, AMP kinase activated, it will turn on a protein called NERF2 and NERF2, in the presence of another uh, co-transcription factor for chromatin remodeling called ARE, will induce a decrease in reactive oxygen and a decrease in inflammatory responses. At the same time, it will also elevate, uh, it will also tank glycolysis and elevate beta oxidation of fatty acids. So that's the NERF2 ARE pathway. So uh, I also want to say, but I think that's that's good enough. So you get the idea of how AMP kinase is also associated here. Now this is at the bioenergetic level of controlling cellular bioenergetic mode between carbohydrate and fatty acid. Now, why is this significant if we're just talking about PPAR? Because remember, PPAR, all three of those isoforms, induce the expression of the beta oxidation genes, including the carnitine palmitoyl transferases one and two, of course. And so what that means is that you're going to need further control over that transcription to block the pathways I just mentioned. What NERF2-ARE does because of the promotion of phosphorylation of the NERF2 transcription factor, and then it's 
co-binding with ARE and landing on the cis elements of DNA, it's going to decrease the amount of reactive oxygen because it's going to increase the amount of redox control over ROS. Remember, these are the enzymes involved in glutathione reductase, glutathione peroxidase, peroxide dismutase. You get the picture. Okay. So at the same time, you're decreasing a pro-inflammatory response with PPAR. You're also increasing uh, genes which will remove reactive oxygen. When you remove reactive oxygen at the same time, decrease the production of it, you move away from that toxic pro-inflammatory response, which can lead to chronic inflammatory diseases that are very common in type 2 diabetes, particularly in association with obesity. Okay? So that's why we are in this conversation. We talked already about AMP and AMP-A receptors. Um, it's a different system, of course. Now, there, the AMP is not adenosine monophosphate. Remember that here I'm talking about 2-amino, 3-hydroxy, 5-methyl, isozazole, 4-eel propionic acid, that kind of receptor. And remember that AMP receptors uh, mediate fast excitatory synaptic transmission. This is back in the CNS. Remember that they are tetrameric ligand-gated ion channels. These receptors are. And each of the subunits is going to consist of at least one flexible intracellular carboxy terminal domain, a helical transmembrane domain, an extracellular ligand binding domain, and of course, the amino terminus. So each of the LBDs, that's the ligand binding, consists now of two subdomains, D1, D2, with adjacent D1 domains creating actually a dimeric interface. So the receptor becomes activated by L-glutamate. The AMPA receptor becomes activated by L-glutamate, which of course is going to increase after proteolysis using the carbon from those amino acids to run the TCA cycle. And also the whole urea cycle entry we talked about before. So the receptor is active by L-glutamate. It binds in the pocket between D1 and D2, those two subdomains of the ligand binding domain. And that leads to a confirmation of change where D2 moves close in closer proximity to D1. That puts a conformational strain on the transmembrane domain, and that will then cause channel opening. Channel closure involves the dissociation of glutamate from that uh, ligand binding domain, and that leads to deactivation of the AMPA receptor. If you get a rearrangement of the D1-D1 interface with L-glutamate, um, that occurs when the ligand binding domain eventually becomes desensitized. So you can, if you maintain that interaction, you get a desensitization, which is just as bad as not having an activation. So positive allosteric modulators uh, with this AMPA receptor bind in a crevice of that protein created by that D1-D1 interface, and it acts by strengthening the agonist-bound 
three-dimensional state of the receptor that attenuates deactivation and it strengthens the interface. Uh, so it slows or tanks desensitization of the receptor. When you stabilize the D1 interface, you also maintain a um, potential for a mutation of a leucine residue at the dimer interface. This is particularly leucine 483. Now that, if that mutation goes from a leucine to a tyrosine, it will also dramatically slow down receptor desensitization. So now this is a, an induced mutation from a stabilization of the subdomains of the LBD of the AMP A receptor. Okay. Now that this is actually an induced um, pro um, alteration of amino acid sequence such that the receptor becomes less likely to be desensitized after constant stimulation. So you go from a ty tyrosine, uh, excuse me, from a leucine to a tyrosine. Okay? That's a dramatic difference because tyrosine is a free hydroxyl group, which means it can be phosphorylated, and that's the whole point. So also that mutation produces a dimeric, as you might guess, ligand binding domain in solution, and that will alter the modulating binding pocket for all the potential ligands, okay? So I'm putting all this together for you because I want you to understand that there are pharmaceuticals which target AMPA, which are used in diabetes. I'm going to stop here because I'm out of time. Uh, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, on the 15th of April, saying bye for now.